From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, September 17th. In light of the recent double homicide of a queer couple in our area, KZMU recognizes the need to share stories from LGBTQ plus community members on our airwaves. Our new project continues today. It's called Lift Up LGBTQ plus Visibility. Over the next few weeks, interviews with LGBTQ locals will be appearing in the newscast. We now have a dedicated page on our website where listeners can access the stories after they broadcast in one place. And thank you, listeners, for the resounding feedback on this project. We are hopeful Lift Up helps deepen understanding and empathy within our community and reinforces a sense of belonging. Here's co-producer Ginger Allen with an introduction for today's storyteller. Nicole is a lover of art and the outdoors who has called Moab home for the past four years. Nicole uses she-they pronouns. They currently work in environmental conservation, managing logistics or field crews, and hope that by showing up as a queer woman in a leadership role, they can help the field feel more accessible to a broader group of people. When they aren't teaching young adults how to operate chainsaws or identify invasive species, They enjoy rafting, crafting, and soaking up the desert sun. I am Nicole Croak. I'm 28 years old. Um, I grew up in western Massachusetts. Um, I moved here to start doing conservation work. I had been living up in Wyoming before that, doing a seasonal job as a rangeland ecologist. And I, um, once that job finished up, came down here to do more um, conservation work um, in the town of Moab along the Colorado River. Um, I say I would most simply just identify myself as queer. Um, I also sometimes use the label bisexual just for, I don't know, simplicity. Um, That's easier for certain people to understand. I guess as far as like gender identity and all that goes, I usually introduce myself as using she, her, or they, them pronouns. And I recognize that my my experience as a human being has definitely been shaped by like how people perceive me. I'm definitely more feminine presenting or feminine perceived. People perceive me as a woman and that has shaped how I've interacted and grown up in the world. I struggle with being identified as a certain gender just with pronouns in speech. Um, I think that feels limiting and like it sets like a preconception in a way of what I'm going to be. So linguistically, I almost prefer those like gender-neutral identifiers, I guess. Yeah, I I guess I have recently started introducing myself as either having she, her, or they, them pronouns, and I think that's like a really simple thing that I can do to show people who have those similar identities that they will be welcome in the space that I am creating there. Coming out, I think that is a complicated subject. I wouldn't say that I had like a 
definitive coming out. It's definitely been in like layers to different people. And like, I realized that I was queer fairly young, like in, I want to say fifth or sixth grade is when I first started recognizing that, like the attractions that I was feeling to women were like similar to the attractions that I was feeling to men. And, um, I even realized that before that point, it was just like, until I think it was like sixth or seventh grade, I didn't realize that you could be attracted to more than one gender. And when I had that realization, I was like, oh, that makes more sense because I have these same feelings for like people of different genders. Um, but it took me a while after that to like actually tell other people that same thing. Um, I had really severe anxiety as a child, so I didn't have a lot of like close personal connections. Um, to begin with, and I think having that or struggling with that anxiety um, made it even more difficult to like feel like I could risk the few close connections I did have to um, share that information about myself. Um, so I think it was eventually in high school was when I started telling a few people that were close to me, and I started with honestly people that. I was less emotionally invested in as friends just because that felt like less of a risk to um, share that information. And actually, so the, the reason my family found out is that I found out that my um, mother was reading my instant message conversations um, and she came and confronted me about it while we were at the public library. Um, not in front of anyone else. We were just like in the stairwell by ourselves. But she was like, I, I read your AIM conversation. Is it true that you like women or something like that? And I, I don't even remember the full conversation because I was just like in a panic at that moment. Um, and I had my running shoes on and I just ran away and <laughs> ran into my friend's house. <laughs> Um, she picked me up later that day and we kind of just acted like nothing happened since then. Um, we did have a few conversations later on where she, cause she had read that I said I was bisexual in that conversation. She was like, you can't be attracted to both. That's, that's greedy. You have to pick one or the other. So, <laughs> um... <laughs> Later on in college, I was in a longer term relationship with a woman, so I think that at that point they probably just accepted me to be like a lesbian. Um, but I haven't really like clarified that with anyone in my family since. So. Like sexuality is something that's super fluid, so I, I don't know, I feel okay about like moving kind of between not between identities but having like kind of a fluid identity of who I'm attracted to I think that's difficult for some people to understand definitely um, and it can be hard to explain and like hard to feel valid right. in my own choices um, without other people knowing that Part of that is just accepting maybe that certain pe certain people are never going to understand that. Um, 
which I guess is something that we all just have to be okay with, but definitely helps to have a community of people that do, and that do see your identities as valid, even if they might, I don't know, be fluid sometimes. One of the first like big memories I have of being in Moab was going to Moab Pride in the fall, and it was like such a such a switch from being in Wyoming to have like a celebration that large in a town this small of queer people in the community coming together. And there's definitely like a lot of people at Moab Pride who are maybe more allies than queer people, but there are a ton of queer people here too. Um, and I feel like grateful to have a lot of other queer friends in Moab. It's definitely not, I don't feel the same way as I did in like Massachusetts where I had friendships that were just like based around queerness and like where everyone in that friend group was queer. I don't really have that so much here, but I do have a lot of friends who identify as LGBT of some sort and um, who, yeah, who share similar experiences as I do and make it easier to be here. <laughs> I remember that there was a little drag show that happened and one of my friends and I went and were completely sober and just danced at this drag party and that was actually like a kind of a breakthrough moment for me too because that was the first time I had gone and like danced and expressed myself completely sober without being super self-conscious about it. Um, usually I'd have a couple of drinks and then dance and then like have a good time and I think that's the first time I was like oh I can like I can be sober and I can dance and I can like do all these things without and nobody's like actually judging me for it and I'm in this space that's like a queer space so that's just like another layer of anxiety that I don't have to worry about I guess I don't know I always felt pretty pretty safe being in Moab until recently. Um, definitely hearing about the double homicide. Um, you can't help but wonder if their um, relationship had something to do with that. Um, I think definitely the fact that they were both women alone probably had something to do with that. Um, and. Yeah, I think being out in the West, especially since I travel alone a lot, I find myself really thinking about choices like that that would identify me as queer and alone in a space that might be fairly conservative in the middle of the, the West. Saying it gets better is very cliche, but it does get better. <laughs> we had dial-up internet in our house when I was a kid, so it was difficult for me to like access communities online. Um, but I would say that like if you are able to get in those online spaces as like a young person now, and that's not something that your parents are controlling, um, that's definitely a great place to, like, find resources and meet other people who might share the same identity as you. Um, 
And I think that going to middle school and going to high school in in a small community like this can really suck depending on I think kids kids can be some of the meaner people <laughs> that you're going to encounter as far as things like LGBT bullying and things like that go and once people are out of those households that they've grown up in and are like moving into other spaces in the world and like learning to be themselves without the fear of like who their family might want them to be you're going to start encountering a lot more relationships that are I don't know you'll start encountering relationships that are more accepting of you as a young person I was aware that my situation was temporary and that I would have a lot more control over my life in the future and that no matter how uncomfortable things felt in the moment for me as a young person, that that was not going to be my forever state of being. Um, and I think being able to embrace change and embrace unknowns and just embrace trying new things is going to set you up for launching yourself into the communities that you want to be a part of. Thank you so much to storyteller Nicole Croak. And thank you to co-producers Ginger Allen for conducting this interview and Sarah Mead for editing this piece. This is the second interview in a KZMU project called Lift Up LGBTQ Plus Visibility. Over the next few weeks, interviews with LGBTQ plus locals will be appearing in the newscast. We now have a dedicated page on our website where listeners can access these stories after they broadcast in one place. You can find Lift Up LGBTQ Plus Visibility under the Programs tab at kzmu.org. And now, the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest local coverage. The chair of the Moab Area Travel Council has resigned after issuing some strong criticisms about the Grand County Commission and their use of the transient room tax. Carter Poppy from the Times Independent has highlights from their story. Yeah, so Howard Trenholm, who was the chair of the Moab Area Travel Council Advisory Board, uh, Trenholm has resigned. Um, we learned about that this week. And this is in the wake of Elaine Gisler, who, of course, basically oversaw the Travel Council, leaving her job. And, uh, you know, Trenholm provided his resignation letter to us. He made a lot of accusations of the county commission and also of uh, Commission Administrator Chris Baird. Uh, I'll go through some of them, but there there is a lot. Um, okay. The primary thing was that he said the county commission, quote, opts out of a requirement in state law that the county spend money on marketing itself for tourism. Of course, we have that requirement in place because we collect the transient room tax on lodging establishments, so camping and hotels. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I've, we've, we've, you and I have talked extensively about that on sure. air. So that's one of his accusations, okay. opting out of the intent of state law. He also said that he generally characterized that, that Baird and the county commission showed a lack of appreciation and support for the advisory board. And to be clear, the advisory board's role is to 
create a set, a set of recommendations given to the county commission and the rest of the county about how to spend transit room tax marketing funds. Uh, Baird responded to everything that we asked him about to this point about opting out of the intent of the legislation. He said, that's just not true. We do spend the marketing money and um, do it in a way that is legal and within not only legal, but within the intent of the law. Mm -hmm. He said to this allegation that the county and specifically he does not show show enough support to the advisory board. um, He said basically that the advisory board and Trenholm specifically has never done his job, which is to provide that list of priorities for Mm -hmm. spending. It went into, you know, kind of more personal stuff. It, it seems that there was already a lot of tension over whether Trent mm-hmm. Holm was to keep his job. And uh, Trent Holm, you know, decided himself to to leave, to resign. Right. And I should say, you know, this is a volunteer position. Right. Trent Holm has been serving in a volunteer position on the Travel Council for quite some time. And being on this body for multiple years, he is very invested in it. Yeah. And I think that it's also useful to know, you know, we asked Elaine Gisler why she resigned and she didn't she didn't say much about it. Certainly not as much as Trenholm did. But her basic thing was that the political environment with the county commission towards tourism marketing mm-hmm. had changed. And there were candidates who ran for county commission who are now sitting on it. You know, they they spoke to the frustration and upset that people were feeling about tourism and growth mm-hmm. in Moab. And, you know, that was the winning message. Uh, those people are mm-hmm. now sitting on the commission. And, uh, you know, I, right. I, we always say elections have consequences. I think that I think that that was probably the change mm-hmm. that um, sort of pushed right. both of them to the point of right. not being able to find agreement with with the county commission. Yeah, it's two different perspectives. You know, with the tourism dollars, Grand County is obligated to spend a certain percentage of the revenue on marketing. The question now is the sustainability messaging, you know, kind of the reframing of the tourism dollars into other messages, I suppose. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing that, you know, we're interested in reporting on further. What is the strategy for minimizing the impact of the marketing that they have to do? Right. Um, And what's the strategy for doing that? You know, they have a certain strategy right now, but that'll be something interesting to dig into in the future. Now, if we can go to a harder story to, to talk and write about, tell us what you can, I guess, about what's in the paper related to the double homicide yeah, I mean a lot of the details are graphic. I'm not going to go into into it here just to kind of give people the opportunity to opt out of knowing about kind of the the gruesome details that we learned about, but um it's in the newspaper if you want to hear about it. Basically, we uh got a search warrant that the Salt Lake Tribune had reported on first that they had used to search uh, the couple's car, the car that they had left at McDonald's. Law enforcement. Law enforcement, correct. And the, they found some items in the in the car, but more interesting were the details that they provided about how, the state of the crime scene when they found it. So that's in the newspaper. I won't go into it here. 
yeah, just to have listeners be aware, it is in the newspaper if they want those details and to be, um, you know, prepared for them when they get there. Um, let's go now to a piece about Grand County Attorney Christina Sloan. Yeah, so uh, Sloan recently signed on to a letter that three other county prosecutors also signed uh, opposing the death penalty. Um, the prompt for this was that State Representative V. Larry Snow of St. George and State Senator Daniel McCavey of Riverton, who are both Republicans, uh, recently announced that they were going to try to do away with the death penalty in Utah in the next legislative session. Um, so Sloan supports abolishing mm-hmm. the death penalty, and um, so do other attorneys in Utah. So uh, they came together, signed a letter of support, and had a press conference to basically talk through some of the details. But Sloan didn't uh, go to that conference, which I think happened in Salt Lake City. Okay. As I said, the thing that prompted it, according to Sloan, was that these two representatives made these comments and they wanted to show their support, so they did. But it also, you know, is is relevant in Moab specifically, you know, unfortunately because of this double homicide case. Mm. Um, We're not – we don't have – charges yet, but this is certainly the sort of thing where you could imagine the death penalty being pursued if someone is, is uh, found mm. guilty in the in the case. So, you know, we, we asked about that specifically. Do, did she believe that if it comes to it, the death penalty would be appropriate in this case? And uh, her thing was no. Uh, she said, quote, generally, I think the death penalty is an archaic emotional response to societal evil. I think opposing the death penalty is reasoned and rational and acknowledges the inherent flaws in our justice system, the low deterrent value, and the high cost of ex- execution. And then to mm. this case specifically, she said, quote, specifically, I think seeing the death penalty in the South Mesa double homicide would not make our community safer or more whole and would lower the emotional intelligence of the Moab community, end quote. Hmm. You know, there is a lot of research about the death penalty out there. And, um, you know, specifically, like she says, whether it does deter these terrible crimes that happen in our society. In her opinion, of course, she she doesn't think that it would. Yeah, the research that they cite, we, we've got some of it in the story. So people should read up on this important thing, um, to especially to get sort of the details from, from these studies. But the studies that they cited were a lot about the cost of pursuing uh, prosecutions and the death penalty uh, in cases where it can be pursued. And, and they said, quote, Utah could have saved up to $11.2 million if Utah's seven death row inmates were sentenced to life in prison without parole rather than the death penalty, plus another $40 million over a two-decade period just for prosecution costs. So their focus is uh, in part on the cost. They have other uh, complaints with the death penalty, um, but you know there is there is research about the deterrent effect um, mm. of, uh, of both prosecution and of penalties. You know it's interesting to look at the differences. There is a difference between what happens when you successfully uh, prosecute a case and what happens when you have higher penalties. They have different effects, mm. and you want to think about those two things differently. So, um, yeah, a lot to read up about and uh, very important debate to be had. Carter Poppy, staff writer at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com.
Moab City is looking for a new builder for the Walnut Lane Affordable Development. This project has encountered a number of setbacks. Allison Hartford of the Moab Sun News highlights their story. So Walnut Lane is an affordable housing project um, that the city first purchased kind of the area in October 2018 um, so that they could build affordable housing. But it's important to remember that throughout all of this and how and their whole planning process mm-hmm. and how much they've gone back and forth, um, Walnut Lane is still a mobile home neighborhood. And so there are tenants who live there that mm-hmm. the city also has to take care of. Right. It's not like a blank slate of land right. that is waiting for development. It's more complicated than that. The city yeah. is actively managing um, right. these rental units um, mm-hmm. while also trying to build more sustainable, um, affordable housing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there was an update this week. What happened? Yeah. So this week, the project was brought back to city council. Um, and most recently, the only update was that the city had to end its construction contract um, with the company IndieDwell. And that happened, like, they officially ended the contract earlier this month. Mm -hmm. Um, So at the city council meeting on September 14th, they kind of had to go all the way back to the drawing board and decide um, which bidding process they were going to do. So they had two options between design-build or design-bid-build. And basically, in the first one, the designers and the builders would have to be in the same contract. Okay. Um, so if they chose the first option, they would have to scrap all of their plans mm. um, and literally start over from the beginning. And then in the second, the design bid build, they can keep their current design plans mm. um, and just try to find a new construction company. So they went with that one. Yeah. So ultimately they went with that one. And that was after a lot of council deliberation. I mean, they talked about it for about an hour. Um, mm-hmm. And at one point, Kaylin Jones said that he didn't really know how to vote because he said that he doesn't believe that the city should pursue building these new duplexes at all. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then... Karen Guzman-Newton mentioned that she was super confused why it was moving so slow, and um, Mm -hmm. I think all of the council members were just frustrated at the timeline, Mm -hmm. Um, and so their current timeline is that they're going to go out to bid now, basically, and then that process will take until mid-November, and then um, once they know who bid, then they can start looking into, like, what it's going to cost and how long it's actually going to take. But for now, they're just kind of waiting until mid-November. So it's not starting from square one with their design plans necessarily, Mm -hmm. but it is kind of going back to the drawing board with a fresh contractor. Yeah. So it's just a question of how long construction is going to take. So you said that there was a lot of deliberation between council members. I know that um, there is palpable frustration about how slowly this process is moving, but did they mention, you know, some of the reasons for that? Yeah, I mean, um, so... Originally, the first construction company, IndieDwell, um, recently came back to the city and said that they could no longer meet the settled sum, um, and they cited the increasing cost of building materials um, with COVID-19, and Mm -hmm. so the city decided to end the contract. And then right now, it's just hard to find local contractors, and I think that 
that's kind of something that's happening nationwide. At the same time that the city is balancing this plan of what to construct and how to make it and everything, they also do have to manage the mobile home neighborhood right. and their current tenants. And I just think that that's like an important piece of this to remember is mm-hmm. that there are people who are literally being affected by it right now. Right. There's more from the city. Um, can you tell us about some reservations some city council members had about the way the city manager resigned? Yeah. So um, just as a background, the city manager, Joel Linares, officially resigned on September 7th. Um, But he only let his fellow city employees know um, the afternoon of September 7th. And so I got a statement from Lisa Church that said that he had let HR know two weeks in advance. Okay. um, But for whatever reason, his coworkers only found out that day. Okay. Um, And so council member Ronnie DeRossery was pretty upset by this. Um, She said that she was informed of his departure in an email at 3.23 p.m. on September 7th that he would be leaving at 5 p.m. And she said that it's pretty unusual that a city council would find out about that, like, Mm -hmm. the day of. Um, And she also said that she would not be bringing this up in public if she didn't feel like she was at her wit's end. Mm. Um, And so she kind of also talked about how recently there's been a lot of complaints toward the city that there's a lack of communication. Mm. And she thinks that this is a very prime example of that. Mm. And... Councilmember Karen Guzman-Newton also kind of echoed that statement, and she said that, you know, right now the city can do something really good for the next city council members and for the next mayor who come in, Um, and yeah, elections are on November 7th, and then the two new council members and the new mayor will start in January, Right. Um, and so she was also kind of echoing that the council should kind of figure this out and get more stability for their staff. There's evidently something happening at City Hall with, Mm. um, especially if there was a statement released by the communications director saying that other staff didn't know about Joel Linares' departure until the day that he actually departed. It's notable to me because the city manager um, reports directly to the city council. Mm -hmm. Um, So the city council is effectively, collectively, you know, that person's boss. Mm -hmm. Um, And for them not to know is like you said, is, is unusual. Right. Ronnie talked about how she wants to have a meeting soon with city council and invite members of the public um, just to talk about how there has been a lot of concerns and complaints about bullying and favoritism in mm-hmm. city hall. And so she just said to the council that they should publicly address that. Good to know. Now, moving on, let's do a few events that you um, profiled in the Moab Sun News yeah. this week. How about the one coming up this weekend? Green River Melon Days Festival is this weekend. Um, it's 115 years old. Wow. Um, I didn't know it was that old. Yeah, very wow. old. Huge tradition. Wow. Um, one of the event organizers said that 4,000 to 5,000 people come to Green River for this festival. There's going to be, you know, like a parade with watermelon floats and a bunch of tournaments, like a golf tournament and a softball tournament and a 5K walk slash run. Vendors offering, you know, all sorts of melons, like (laughs) everything you could imagine. Uh Watermelon, honeydew, cantaloupes, um, unusual melon varieties. Wow. 
this is happening Friday and Saturday? Yes, it's happening Friday and Saturday in Green River, Utah. Um, we want to mention that um, there are more events coming up that were profiled in the Mobs and News one is very sciencey. Can you just give us a heads up on that one? Yeah, the Moab Festival of Science will be from Wednesday, September 22nd to Sunday, September 26th. So it's five days and it's just kind of a celebration of local science. And there are going to be a ton of really cool speakers and hikes um, and kids activities. And the keynote speaker is Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, who is an atmospheric scientist and professor of political science at Texas Tech. Um, mm. And she just came out with a new book called Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. Oh, neat. And yeah, during the keynote, she'll kind of just be discussing that. I talked to a couple members of the committee who put together the Festival of Science, and they said that every year they try to pick topics and speakers that are really relevant to the community um yeah so this year they have you know dr hayhoe who's talking Mm. about climate science um they're also going to have a talk on the pat creek fire Mm. which is really interesting um they're going to have a couple like lichen hikes oh neat which definitely sound fun every event that they're going to have is free and you know festival attendees can attend as many or as little as they like Um, A couple of them require registration, so it's good to just check the website. It sounds like there's like a a mix of in-person events and then are are some of the speaking events online or is it also in person? Yes. Yeah, they are going to be online, which um, Sasha Reed, who is an organizer, she mentioned that that's kind of an interesting part of the festival because while they are super attuned to the community and it's like mostly, you know, um, a community thing, it's also really cool that they're able to kind of make this more of a worldwide event like anyone who wants to see these online speakers can tune in allison hartford staff reporter at the moab sun news subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com that's it for our weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest local coverage. Find the stories mentioned today in the show notes of the news on our website and podcast. Thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.